This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for December 21st, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. The Democrats lost three Senate seats in the November midterm elections. Missouri Senator Claire McCaskill, one of those candidates, defeated in her re-election bid. Missouri's Attorney General Republican Josh Hawley will succeed her starting in January. One Senate tradition is the farewell address. Senators speaking of their accomplishments, thanking their staff, and reminiscing about their time in the U.S. Senate. Here is a portion of Senator Claire McCaskill's farewell address. Peter Morgan, an author, said no family is complete without an embarrassing uncle. We have too many embarrassing uncles in the United States Senate. Lots of embarrassing stuff. The United States Senate is no longer the world's greatest deliberative body. And everybody needs to quit saying it. Until we recover from this period of polarization and the fear of the political consequences of tough votes. Writing legislation behind closed doors. Giant omnibus bills that most don't know what's in them. K Street lobbyists knowing about the tax bill manager's package before even senators. That's today's Senate. Senator Claire McCaskill earlier this month on the Senate floor. We sat down with the outgoing Democratic senator to get her take on the Senate, the lack of bipartisanship, her relationship with President Barack Obama, and what's next. Senator McCaskill, as someone who has spent most of her adult life in public life, what's going through your mind right now? What are you thinking? Well, there's a jumble of emotions. Um, I'll be obviously candid in that there's some, I hate losing. You know, I'm a competitive person. I've always worked very hard not to lose. So let's just say that up front and acknowledge it. But I also feel an incredible sense of freedom. Um, I, you know, when you live a public life, you have to kind of be in a defensive crouch. And while I've been um, more outspoken than many of my colleagues, and I pride myself on my candor and my willingness to actually answer a question, uh, there's times that you have to, like, go carefully and cautiously. I don't have to anymore. I don't have to be careful or cautious. I can say whatever I damn well please, and I'm really looking forward to that, and I'm looking forward to uh, the next adventures, and I know there's going to be some great ones. Well, let's begin with your road to politics, and I want to ask you about your mom and dad, because they also were in public life. What did they teach you about government and public service? Well, first, let's disabuse the notion that they were anybody that was a big deal or powerful. My mom and dad were um, uh, great um, middle-class parents that struggled sometimes with getting enough money in the door, but they really believed in government and public service. And they participated in campaigns, mostly. My mom would make us stuff envelopes around the kitchen table for her candidate of choice. Uh, or my dad was a committeeman on the Democratic Committee. Um, neither one of them held important jobs. Uh, neither one of them had some kind of VIP political status. So I really saw politics from the ground up because that's where my parents were. Uh, they also did something that's, I think, pretty special in that every night we were required to sit down and either watch Huntley and Brinkley or Walter Cronkite for 30 minutes 
Then the TV went off, and then we sat down and had dinner. And then we talked about, at the dinner table, what we'd just seen on the news. And that exposure to world events and talking about it through my mom and dad's eyes really made me understand that a lot of good people do this. And I was never taught that politicians were dirty, rotten SOBs. I was taught that the vast majority of people in both parties are trying to do something extra to help their government. So I, I was raised in a household, obviously, where I was encouraged in this line of work. And they were tremendous supporters of mine. And my mom, of course, was the best politician that ever walked the planet in terms of understanding the value of never looking past anybody. So why did you do it? Why did you decide in public service? I started working on campaigns in high school. And I had a lot of teachers tell me, Claire, you do much better in subjects where there's not a right or wrong answer. If you can argue about something. I began doing public speaking when I was in junior high, uh, entering speech contests. I did debate in high school. Um, and I just kind of made up my mind when I was a fairly young teenager that I needed to be the first woman governor of Missouri. And I have tried to explain to other women that we need to be less shy about our ambition. We need to be proud of our ambition. And I had a boatload of ambition from a pretty young age and have been driving hard towards um, public service and elective office um, for, for now decades. And so this is quite an adjustment uh, to all of a sudden not be thinking in terms of when will the next campaign come up. You ran for governor once before. Any interest in pursuing it again? No, I'm done. I'm done. Um, and I say that with a smile on my face. You know, it's really irritating to me that, you know, I can, I can say that I was disappointed the way the Kavanaugh thing was handled, or, and then all of a sudden it's like popping up in various places. Oh, McCaskill's mad at the Democrats, or McCaskill's angry. I am not mad or angry at anybody. I feel like I'm the luckiest woman on the planet. I've had uh, 34 years of holding elective office in a state that I love, and I have loved my job. I've, my feet have hit the ground every day. Um, looking forward to the day. I think of all the people I encountered in the, this recent campaign that are clearly counting the days to retirement, that are frustrated and angry, that they've worked harder and harder and haven't been able to get ahead, can't afford to retire, um, don't really like their work. And I've loved my work. Uh, even the bad stuff I could put up with because the work was uh, exhilarating and challenging and rewarding. So I'm, I'm feeling... Um, uh, uh, I should say, moderately fat and happy. When you saw your name on the ballot for the first time and voted for yourself, what did you think? Um, I was very nervous about winning. Um, you know, I was in my 20s and I was single. I rented, I didn't own. In fact, I'll never forget one of the first speeches on the floor of the Missouri legislature after I'd gotten elected was some older white man was talking about how the American dream, and he started ticking off all these things, you know, married, with children, a home you own, you know, all this stuff. And I hadn't, didn't have any of it. But wait a minute. I'm here, and I'm thinking I'm doing okay with the American dream. Um, so I, you know, I, I, when I first ran, I was very young and didn't know much. And um, so I just felt the first time I saw my name on the ballot, I was excited. I was thrilled that I had made it through a primary, and I was voting for myself, and ultimately won that election and won almost everyone since then. You brought up the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation process. What should the Democrats have done differently, if anything? I think the most important mistake that was made 
was that when the letter came in um, from Professor Ford, uh, that letter should have been given to the FBI with the understanding that she wanted to remain confidential. And why wasn't it? I think that was a decision that was made by either uh, Senator Feinstein or her staff. And I'm not sure why. I don't think it went beyond them. Um, and I don't think for a minute that Diane Feinstein was trying to hold anything till the 11th hour. I think she was, they were trying to err on the side of protecting this woman who said she didn't want to go public. But when you're in this kind of situation and you have that kind of responsibility, I think giving the letter to the FBI as soon as they got it, with the understanding, FBI deals with confidential stuff all the time. It's not like the FBI wouldn't follow that it needed to be confidential. But then at least it would have absolved that accusation, absolved them of the accusation that this was held until the 11th hour in order to try to kneecap him. Was it a watershed moment in the Me Too movement? I don't know that it was a watershed moment in the Me Too moment. I, I, I do think the Me Too movement is still going strong. I think there are still women who are, um, and I think things have changed in the workplace, uh, permanently, I believe. I think more people now understand that, oh, everybody does that, or that happens all the time is no longer acceptable. Uh, so I think good things have come out of this in terms of women feeling empowered and feeling that they no longer have to put up with unwanted advances in the workplace. Um, I do think it was certainly a, a watershed moment in the campaign for many of us that are in really red states. Why did you win in 2006? Um, well, uh, you know, I, 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 that's a hard question to answer in a short period of time. It was a combination of things. Um, I had just lost the race for governor, so I um, was better known because of that. I um, learned from the governor's loss in terms of working harder everywhere in the state, not taking for granted that I could win just by doing well in the Democratic areas. Uh, President Bush was very unpopular. National politics always plays a role when you've got a state like Missouri. It's always going to have an influence. And um, that, that influence was in my favor in 2006. And I was, I was running against the status quo. Um, you know, that's the irony of this whole thing, is that I think I would have, I don't know that I could have won, but I would have come a lot closer if this was the first race I'd ever run. Um, experience is now not a positive thing in government. I, I like to make the joke in, in my stump speech. Imagine if they're wheeling you into the operating room and the nurse leans down and says, I've got really good news for you. This surgeon has never done this before. You'd go, whoa, whoa, whoa back the gurney up, back it up. But in government now, that's exactly what people want. They want people running for office that have never been around government because they've become so cynical that anyone who has chosen this for a career is not looking after them. And um, I find that very sad because I'm a much stronger senator because of the jobs I've held. My time in the courtroom as a prosecutor makes me better at hearings. I know how to go after a witness and make a point. My time as auditor. I couldn't have ever done the work I did at the Pentagon, cleaning up contracting over there, if I hadn't had that background. So all of the things I've done in the public sector made me a stronger and better senator. But when, when my opponent told people over and over again that I'd been running for office for 36 years, 
um, he was saying that over and over again because he knew that was hurting me. Uh, the polling was telling him that people just, you know, they want something different. They want something different because the people who are here now are not getting things done that they want done. In terms of legislation, where do you think Claire McCaskill has left her biggest mark here in the Senate? Uh, that's, um, you know, I think probably the changes that we got done in terms of how the military handles sexual assault is big. It would be in the top five. Um, shutting down online sex trafficking would be in the top five. The investigation that Rob Portman and I did together that went all the way to the Supreme Court that finally um, got enough in energy behind it that we could actually change the law as it related to knowingly facilitating online sex trafficking. Um, cleaning up Arlington was certainly something that I'm very, very proud of. And probably the thing I'm most proud of is the geekiest that most people don't even know about. And it's all the oversight work we did in contracting. Um, when I got here and I began to look at the way the Pentagon was contracting, particularly in theater, particularly looking at what had gone on in the Iraq war with wartime contracting. You know, I'm a fangirl, an embarrassing fangirl of Harry Truman and know all about his very lonely quest to expose wartime profiteering and how that, how he really made his bones by going out in his car with just one other person driving around the country looking at these uh, defense contractors that were just totally uh, reaping big profit off the war. Uh, and I got here and I wanted to look at that same problem and I think we really did reform in a major way the way, in fact, I'll, this is my very, one of my very favorite stories. Somebody who went over to do some civilian time in Afghanistan uh, came back, he worked at CRS and he called one of my staff. He goes, I want your boss to hear this because this will probably make her day. I was in a, a, a building with a bunch of military guys over there and they were talking about buying something. And they said, well, I think we can get away with buying it without bidding it. And somebody in the room said, don't try it. McCaskill will find out and you'll pay hell for it. So that was like one of those, you know, woohoo moments for this geeky former auditor who um, was very excited that we'd actually move the needle on behavior and contracting within the Pentagon. When people come to this office, the first thing they will see are pictures of Harry Truman. The buck stops here behind you. How would he view the Democratic Party today? Well, I think he would um, certainly support um, how committed we are to trying to do better on health care for everyone. I think he would be um, very upset about how much distance there is between the haves and the have-nots in this country and that the middle class is eroding. I think he'd have something to say about the men and women who uh, collectively bargain for better wages and benefits and workplace protections. I think he would be sad about how uh, that part of the middle class has been attacked as, as strongly as it has been. I think he would have some um, really bad words about our current president. Uh, he hated a phony. Uh, he hated people that were full of bluster and always wanting to brag about themselves. He was a really humble, plain-spoken guy, but he had a backbone of steel, and I don't think he would have, he didn't suffer fools very well, and I think he would have had a lot of um, 
choice words for our current president. I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but how do you think Harry Truman influenced or affected your home state, Missouri? Well, I think, you know, I think he affected this country. Um, the interesting thing about Harry Truman is how unpopular he was when he left office. He had a pretty lonely journey over to the train station as he left town. Um, you know, people that worked for him and that were friends of his certainly turned out, but it, he was not beloved as he left office. I mean, think about Harry Truman integrating the armed services. Imagine what the polling was. How many Americans were really thought it was a great idea to integrate the armed services when Harry Truman did it? Uh, but he did it because it was the right thing to do. And he did, um, obviously had to make some decisions that were the most difficult decisions anybody could ever make. But he, he, he was strong and he spoke plainly and he wasn't afraid to say his opinion. And so the irony is he was so unpopular when he left and then you watch people always trying to claim him. I mean, nothing drives me more crazy than when a Republican starts saying, oh, I'm just like Harry Truman. I want to say, you know, if Harry Truman were here, he would have some choice words for you and probably take off his jacket. Um, so it's really, um, uh, I, and our state's very proud of him uh, for all those reasons, because he did do some courageous things, um, whether it's the creation of Israel or integrating the armed services. Um, you know, he showed that even though he'd had a background, that one might assume that he was not tolerant and didn't embrace diversity. He certainly made decisions that showed he did. You never met him, but did anyone in your family ever meet him over the years? Oh, sure. Uh, he was a graduation speaker at the University of Missouri when um, my mom graduated from college. And uh, he was at events. And I probably was at events where he was when I was a little girl, but I don't recall meeting him. Um, it would have... Uh, it, I wish I'd been old enough that I would have had a chance to have a conversation with him. When you ran for re-election, you said you're not one of those so-called crazy Democrats. What did you mean? Well, you know, here's the thing. Uh, that got, you can imagine, I mean, that was one of those things that everybody took it for what they wanted it to be. I was watching people walk in restaurants and scream at people in restaurants. I, I, I just don't think that helps the cause at all. I mean, what, what does that do other than just alienate most regular folks out there. Um, we had a state senator in Missouri that actually put on a Facebook page that she hoped that President Trump would be assassinated. That's a crazy Democrat. Um, the extreme of um, confrontation. I, I get passion, and I think people, the right to assemble and the right to protest. I was at the Women's March in St. Louis. I was at um, uh, the march um, around gun safety in St. Louis. I was there participating. Uh, I am certainly somebody who, um, while not ashamed to say I'm a moderate, I I'm certainly left of center, not right of center. So it's not that I am disavowing my party. It's just if you want to communicate with the American people about what your values are, you need to reflect that in your behavior. And, you know, I was raised to be polite and that good manners mattered. So people who are impolite, I don't think they're very effective at moving the needle uh, towards the policies that we want to embrace. So what do you think of President Trump? You know, I, I have been so disciplined because he's so distracting, right? I mean, part of our problem is he controls every news cycle by craziness. Um, and I didn't want to get so distracted by his behavior that people in Missouri thought that my job was fighting him because my job was fighting for them. So 
when I'd go to town halls and the Democrats there would go, well, you know, we got to, you know, do something about the president. I'd always say, you know, hey, I want to do something about health care. I want to, you know, I want to get something done on infrastructure. I want to get things done for you. And so it's not going to be as I'm not going to be as effective if all I'm doing is bashing President Trump. Um, but boy, there have been times it was really hard not to speak out because he is so over the top on some of this stuff. I mean, I have never known anybody ever in elective office that had a more tortured relationship with the truth. Being a truth teller is really important as a leader. And he is so willing to lie daily, uh, even when everyone knows he's lying. And probably the thing that's most disappointing for me is not what President Trump's doing, but the fact I have so many Republican colleagues that are um, kind of acquiescing to this new normal, that you can have one of the biggest liars in our country's history uh, in the Oval Office, and nobody's calling him out on it. So in a quiet moment, what do those Senate Republicans tell you? Oh, he would be. The president would lose it if he heard how they talked about him behind his back. How so? Terribly. I mean, uh, I mean, not all of them, but a lot of my Republican colleagues, if they're in a quiet place and they know they're not going to get thrown under the bus, like I will not throw them under the bus, um, basically say the guy is uh, a terrible leader. He's not well informed. Um, I had a, a, a senator tell me a story at, at, at President Bush's funeral just now that, that there was a meeting at the beginning of his presidency when he said, well, you know, judges are so important because they sign the laws. I mean, how do you have a president of the United States that doesn't even understand the role of judges and doesn't even really have a fundamental understanding of checks and balances? I mean, clearly he doesn't understand the limits of his power because he always says stuff he's going to do that he has, of course, no power to do. Um, it's like him right before the election saying, oh, we're going to do a 10% tax cut right before the election. And we're all looking around going, pretty sure you need Congress on board for that. Pretty sure that's not going to happen. But that didn't even slow him down from saying it. So it is stunning, really. I think history will um, judge uh, those who have not spoken out. And maybe that's me included, because I didn't do a lot of speaking out um, during the last two years. Uh, harshly, I think, especially those in the Republican Party who are giving up some of the things they really believe in, like free trade and like deficit reduction. Uh, they've all gone, you know, radio silent on some of the things that have been pretty important principles in their party for many years. As we talked to you today, you mentioned George Herbert Walker Bush's funeral earlier today at the Washington National Cathedral. You were in the church. What was your takeaway? What was the message of that funeral? Um, the dignity matters. You know, this is a man who, by a political scorecard, some people might have had the audacity just to call him a loser. Because, you know, he is a one-term president. He didn't make it a second term. He was defeated. But his, his character uh, was so good through his entire life. He never wavered from some pretty important principles, including telling the truth, since we're talking about telling the truth, telling the truth, uh, putting country first, uh, valuing loyalty and friendship, uh, having uh, dignity, understanding good manners, uh, and maybe most important of, of all, that he, he wasn't a, a braggart. Uh, he wasn't a boaster. 
He wasn't, hey, look at me, aren't I great? He was um, roll up our sleeves and figure out if we can do things to solve problems. So uh, it was a great bipartisan moment to see all of the living presidents there. It had to be a little uncomfortable, I think, for President Trump because so many of the values that were celebrated at this funeral are ones where I think he um, probably, I hope, has enough self-awareness to know that they would not probably be mentioned in the top five descriptions of him. We have been asking every retiring member the same question. Finish the sentence. The state of politics in Washington, D.C. is what? I don't want to say broken because there's still a lot of work getting done. But I am worried about everybody in their bubbles and the atrophy of the middle. Um, you know, you can't really accomplish things in this town if you're not bringing people in from the edges and finding that sweet spot. And there are fewer and fewer people that are hanging out in the middle because the politics of the middle is very hard. There's no reward politically for the middle. Uh, there's just a lot of haters on both sides usually um, for the middle. So I, I worry about the fact that we don't have enough moderates right now to really pin down that middle ground. Um, it, it, you know, I, I was commenting to one of my Republican colleagues coming back on the bus from the funeral. It is a sad development that tonight we're going to have dinner for the senators that are leaving the Senate. And up until a few years ago, that was always done with all of us together. And tonight they're going to be two separate dinners. I don't get that. I don't get that. I want to hug Orrin Hatch and thank him. We are friends. We work together on some things. Uh, I want to celebrate Bob Corker. He's one of my best buds. Um, he's a great guy. Uh, I think we should be together, particularly for things like that. And the fact that we have, um, we have drifted into this polarization, even for retirement dinners, uh, is, it worries me a great deal. You have been one of those moderates bridging the two parties together. So what does your departure mean for the Democrats? Well, I do. Party? I think there's fewer. I, I mean, Kirsten Cinema. I told her I'm tagging her. She's in. I'm out. I think she is somebody who's worked in the middle. She understands the value of that. So I think, um, and I think Jackie Rosen is from a state that is not bright blue. So she understands that, you, you know, here's the thing. People don't get elected president without independent voters. People don't get elected in places like Missouri, Nevada, Arizona, Florida, Ohio, I could go on and on, without independent voters. Independent voters decide presidential elections, and they, de they decide who, what party controls the Senate. So if you are only viewing through a lens of what's going to make the base of my party happy, and you're not viewing through the lens of somebody who doesn't make up their mind based on party, um, there's going to be um, problems for my party if we don't continue to work at finding that middle ground and getting things done. Because that's what independents want. They actually just want us to quit, you know, caterwauling and having food fights and, you know, elbowing each other out in front of each other on cable TV, except C-SPAN. Um, and, and they want us to get some work done. And I think moderates really help that happen. And I do 
know that there's a lot fewer moderates of both parties, frankly, in, in the Senate right now than there were when I got here. So two final points with regard to what people see on the outside on cable TV. Is it different on the inside? Well, it's not as contentious on the inside. Um, you know, I'm friends with my Republican colleagues. I work with my Republican colleagues. President Trump has signed dozens of my bills into law. I mean, Susan Collins, I got a really important bill done. You know, Rob Portman, and I got a bill done. There's a lot of things we've gotten done, um, but it doesn't get a lot of attention. You know, nobody wants to, you know, breaking news, you know. People actually work together and got something done, and by the way, it'll probably help you out a little bit in your life. It's not exactly a soundbite, and it's not dramatic, and, you know, the guy in the Oval Office is about as dramatic as you can get. So I think that's one of the problems is the American people. When I told people in Missouri that I'd been part of a bill that was going to bring down the cost of hearing aids from like $6,000 to like 500 bucks, everybody's going, oh my God, that's great because hearing aids aren't covered by Medicare. So there's, there's millions of Americans who can't afford a hearing aid who can't hear well. This is a great deal, right? Nobody knew it happened because it was underneath all of the noise and the drama and the chaos. So um, I think that's one of the challenges we're going to have going forward, is if you're, if you're looking for eyeballs and clicks, um, you know, you're going to talk about, you know, Beyonce near naked, or, you know, who's having sex with who, or, you know, paying off the porn star, or who's taking the Fifth Amendment. And the day-to-day -day work that is actually getting done here is not recognized, and therefore the American people think we're all up here just performing badly. And that's too bad. And I hate that because I'm proud of the work we've done. And I think Americans would approve of it. But I don't think that it's likely anytime soon they're going to know much about it. You've worked with three presidents, Bush, Obama, and now President Trump. Any memories, any stories that stand out? Well, I obviously have a lot of stories from the Obama years because we were close. Um, I was uh, the first woman in the Senate to endorse him, one of the very first senators to endorse him. And um, while it was difficult, because a lot of my women supporters around the country were furious with me, um, I, I, got, I, I worked very hard in that campaign. I was very involved and um, was on the plane a lot, going places with uh, then-candidate Barack Obama. And um, so I was uh, fortunate that during his presidency, I got to do a lot of fun stuff. Um, my daughter grew up almost a little freaky, being a fan of Bob Dylan and knew all of Bob Dylan's lyrics to most of his songs when she was a very young lady. So when Bob Dylan came to the White House and I was able to get the two of us to be in the second row right behind the president listening to Bob Dylan sing, you know, that's, that's a pinch me moment. And it was, it's fun for me to be able to do that for my kids. And I've been able to do that a few times, be able to have those special moments that most people don't get a chance to do. And uh, the fact that you can do it with members of your family um, that really appreciate it, um, it, it is, it's, it's, ex it's extraordinary. This has been an extraordinary experience. And that's why I hate it that anybody would say that I would leave here mad. How could I be mad? I've had one of the best jobs in the world, and I've been fortunate. In a private moment, what's Barack Obama like? Barack Obama is... Um, you know, I used to, there were several things I used to tell him a lot. One was I used to say to eat your spinach, which meant you've got to call and schmooze people. He was not a great schmoozer. You know, he didn't want to call, you know, Jay Rockefeller on the phone, just say, hey, what's up, Jay? You know, that presidents 
sometimes do to help grease their legislative priorities. They have phone conversations, and, and President Obama was not really fond of the schmoozing. And so, um, but he was, um, uh, he was much more laid back, funnier, um, you know, he was so focused in his public presidency about serving the dignity of the office. He's never told me this, but I believe that he knew as the first African-American president, he was going to be judged carefully and that he needed to adhere to a very high standard. Uh, I mean, the only thing I used to tease him about is before he was president, I'd get a bear hug. After I was president, I'd get one of these, I'm not sure I can hug you very closely because it may not look dignified. Um, so he really did try so hard to never, I mean, the only time I really saw him frustrated was when he had a party at the White House uh, after the second election and people were taking, you know, you weren't supposed to be using any cell phones for video or, and people were doing that and they put it out. And I, I think he was irritated because he was kind of letting loose, you know, he was dancing and, you know, behaving in a way that was not, in his mind, dignified and presidential. He was very focused on that, and I respect that, that he wanted to leave office without anybody thinking that he had somehow um, lowered the standards of what happens in the Oval Office. Now, go figure. Now, what, two years later, we have Kanye West in the Oval Office MFing on camera. Can you imagine what would have happened if that would have happened during Barack Obama's presidency? The lid would have blown off of the place. So, um, but he was very cautious about making sure that he, um, he, he, he and, and in person, obviously, when it was just the two of us, he was certainly not dignified. He was just normal and funny and smart. Finally, when you walk out from these doors for a final time, what will you be thinking and what's next for Claire McCaskill? Well, I, you know, the only thing that, you know, I've got 11 grandchildren and 12th grandchild on the way. And some of them are so young that they haven't had a chance to be here and see it. Um, so that will be probably the biggest regret I have, that um, some of the young ones, um, I'll have to bring them back for a tour, but they'll never see Cece on the floor of the Senate like some of my older grandchildren have. That's what they call you? Yeah, yeah. And so... Um, and, I, you know, obviously I'll be sad. This has been a huge part of my life. But I'm also very excited. I'm excited about what comes next. I do feel a sense of freedom. Um, I've got things I want to get done. I've got things I want to say. Uh, and just think, this time next year, I won't be worrying about how long before Christmas will I actually get home. Senator McCaskill, we thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly, available wherever you download your favorite podcast or on the web at cspan.org.